0: Hi, and welcome to the August Forum. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'll be sharing the stories of fashion industry professionals, creatives, and entrepreneurs about their journeys and experiences as they advance within this ever-growing industry. The August Forum, as an extension of the shop itself, allows you to have the ability to listen to those in the space. So whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur, trying to break into the fashion industry, or you're just curious about the ins and outs, we hope these stories will help you to achieve your goals. In this episode, we have the honor of featuring Dr. Faisal Abdullah an esteemed artist, educator, and barber. Currently serving as the Associate Dean for the Arts at UW-Madison, Dr. Abdullah is showcasing his latest exhibition, Dark Matter, at the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art. The exhibit delves into discussions on social identity and representation, and Dr. Abdullah aptly conveys these messages to his audience. Our conversation with Faisal not only delves into his artistic journey, but also explores his portfolio and the powerful voice he lends to individuals who share his perspective. We will also touch on his personal affinity for music and how it informs his work as an artist and a human being. Our engaging dialogue with Faisal proves to be an enlightening and captivating conversation, and we trust that you will find it equally so. This is The August August. Forum. All right, so for today's episode, I'm joined with Dr. Faisal Abdullah. How are you, Faisal?
1: I'm very well, Andrew. I'm,
0: I'm phenomenal. I mean, I'm so happy we're getting you on. I mean, this is like, I feel like just a good time, good timing. It like all worked out perfectly, which I'm really happy about.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Before we get started, do you want to introduce who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. So my name is Dr. Faisal Abdullah. I'm the Chazen Distinguished Chair in Art at UW-Madison. And I'm also the Associate Dean for the Arts in the School of Education. I'm an artist and a barber.
0: You're a barber. We're going to get into all these crazy things that when I was researching you, I was like, I find out one thing and I'm like, oh my goodness. And then there's this other thing that I have to learn about you. And it's just like, it's like your lore is very deep. And I'm I was very happy to learn all about you here. But since we are a fashion and culture podcast, I ask all the guests that we have on, what music have you been listening to recently? And then what have you been wearing recently? What is Faisal's uniform?
1: Okay, so what I've been listening to, I've been listening to, uh, actually, I can't even say it properly, Krumban. Oh, Krumban? Krumban, yeah.
0: Yes, yes. I bought,
1: I bought like the last like three or four albums. Right, so that's my kind of go to on a Friday
2: mm-hmm. when
1: I'm in my studio. I still have vinyl. I'm listening, I'm pulling up again the old sonra Ra album, Languidity, right. I'm mm-hmm. to that. I'm also listening to Tanks and Bangers again. Wow. Uh, they've got a new very, album out. Very,
0: very diverse.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also recently, we can touch on this later, I'm uh, pulling out my old impressions albums. Mm. So I think Curtis Mayfield was with them and Reggie Torrin. So we can talk a little bit about that later. So that's kind of what's in my orbit in terms of music. I like a variety of things.
0: Mm -hmm. And then in terms of what you're wearing, like what your day-to-day looks like?
1: Yeah, so what I'm wearing, recently I've been wearing a brand called Malkuth. Mm -hmm. They're based in London. What I wear, smell-wise, Salvage by Christian Dior. Nice. Uh, Outwear, I like Belstaff, UK brand. Shoes, Amara Hark. She actually makes handmade shoes. I I like those. Suits. I like my suits made, so I only buy a few. There's mm. a tailor in London called Chris Bell. I like his stuff, and there's a brand that I like also called Hollander. Hollander. Mm. Today I'm just wearing a vintage leather jacket and some cargos and some Nikes. Wow, um, that's what I like to wear. Like you know, closer to the weekend and just to be comfortable. Right.
0: right. So it seems like all these brands and creatives that you mentioned are seems like they're based from London. Do you find yourself kind of like sometimes struggling being like finding the things you like here in the U.S.?
1: I think I like particular kinds of cuts. Right. And I think, yeah, I think I do have, you know, U.S. brands in my Mm. wheelhouse of fashion. But my brain has been, you could say, has been hardwired Mm. on the kind of European way is that you have fewer things, Mm -hmm. but have signature things. Right. And then you kind of mix them up. So yeah, so I think that's where I'm at kind of a, at the moment. I mean, there's the usual, you know, the Calvin Kleins, the Tom Hill figures, but I do think there are some real smaller brands, signature mm-hmm. brands that I really, really like because they fit really well. You know, like G Star. But yeah, there's some there's some things I really kind of like.
0: I love my G Star jeans. They're like some of my favorite pairs.
1: Yeah, they've got really good fit, good fabric. Well made. Yeah. And the jackets are really beautifully tailored. I do love the star jackets.
0: Well, now we got a little appetizer going. So let's get a little bit more into the meat and potatoes of the podcast here. So today we're going to talk about your artistic works in your collaborative and own personal projects. And you're also just a renowned art educator, but you also have skills, again, that you first mentioned, being a barber. But mm-hmm. before we even talk about all these different things that you're involved in, what has your journey been so far that has led to you sitting with me today and talking?
1: I think I'm here today sitting with you talking because of a haircut. Mm. So I do this thing called Live Salon. Mm-hmm. So I'm telling you the story almost kind of like halfway through how Live Salon came into existence. Right. But I'm doing an art performance called Live Salon. And I was doing it at the Tate Gallery in London in 2010. And Live Salon essentially is a pop-up barbershop. And the Tate, you know, wanted me to do this pop-up barbershop in the Rotunda space. Mm -hmm. Basically, I invite strangers from the audience to sit in the chair. And I start in their hair and we start talking about life, relationships, all kinds of, you know, open-ended things. And the audience can participate. And one time I was doing it at the Tate and a friend of mine emailed me from the US when I was in London. He said, hey, a mm-hmm. friend coming over, can you meet him, have dinner with him, show him a few places? I was like, sure. So I said to him on the email, meet me at the Tate, Britain. And he was like, sure. I'd never met this, this individual. He turns up, he's a professor in art history, Henry Draw. So he turns up and he said, what are you doing here? <laughs> I said, well, I'm doing a, a live performance. He said, where? I said, over there, he said, But well, there's a chair over there. I said, yeah, I'm doing a haircutting performance. And I said, have you got time? Can you sit in the chair for me? He was like, sure. So he was the first person to sit in the chair. And we had this one-hour conversation about art, about Yoruba traditions. I mean, he mm-hmm. was super kind of well-versed. And, and we became friends through that cut.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's
1: from that moment then he decided to invite me to Madison a year later to do a lecture. And then invited me back again to be the visiting artist in 2013. And then in 2014, I was asked to apply for the position. And in a truncated version, that's how I arrived here.
0: Wow. That's a really interesting journey. I feel like many professors as a student here I meet, you know, they grew up well within the U.S. They kind of had the education here. They knew their journey and kind of like they may have gone in the professional world in their specific industry in their specific division and then they came back to be an educator but it seems like for you it was like it was an opportunity that came to you as you went along it wasn't planned out it wasn't something that you were like that's my end goal it kind of naturally progressed
1: and the long story you know I was born and raised in London Mm -hmm. you know my parents came from Jamaica in the late 60s in that around that Windrush moment. The Windrush moment was 1948, but my parents came a little bit later. I'm the youngest of eight siblings. So me and my brother were born in London. Mm -hmm. My siblings were born in Jamaica, and then they came over. And, you know, I was curious as a young kid. You know, my dad always took me to the barbershops that were in people's homes. Mm -hmm. And I'd have to bring my sketch pad and my comics because they said kids are seen and not heard.
2: Hmm. so
1: I'd sit and I'd observe everyone and make up these stories in my head you know and do these drawings and then as I got a little bit older you know I still had a passion for art and Mm -hmm. they saw that when I was at school I was good academically but also you know I really loved the art and then my teacher said hey you thought about applying to art school I was like absolutely not (laughs) my father and mother want me to be a doctor or (laughs) sir that was their thing and You know, I remember going to the National Portrait Gallery and seeing all the paintings, you know, the great, you know, paintings that I'd seen in books Mm -hmm. and made a real, you know, because I had a good visual acuity and I remember seeing all the paintings and seeing depictions of my own body Mm. in servient positions. And I was like, hmm, why is that? My art teacher said, hey, that's the the artist's imagination. And I was like, no. And it was at that point, I decided that I would write a promissory note to myself that I would pursue a career in the arts. And then from that point on, I got my portfolio together, applied to all of the really good art schools, got into my foundation at Harrow when I was 18, then did one year in my foundation in the Harrow School of Art, and then applied to my Bachelor of Arts degree at Central St. Martins. And I got in there and I was there. And in my first year at Central St. Martins, I went to the U.S. for the first time as an exchange student. Right. That was my first American experience when I was 19. Where were you Mass- going? Massachusetts College of Art. Nice. That's why I, I learned to cut hair. That's where I changed my name because my original name was Paul Anthony Duffus. Mm-hmm. That's where I, my work, you know, became much more aligned mm. with some of the themes and concerns and, you know, Things in my orbit that I felt were really important. Right. And then graduated when I was 21 and then went straight to my master's. And graduated in 1993 with my master's from the Royal College of Art. And then they pushed me out into the art world. And that was my kind of journey.
0: How was that when you graduated after your master's program and you kind of just right there said they just pushed me out into the art world? In your initial, your you know, vastly just only 21. Like, how did you feel? being pushed out and sent out to like the more professional world.
1: I mean, I think, you know, they can give you as much guidance and Mm -hmm. support, but life has a way of teaching you something different. Right. At university, you're almost like protected, Mm -hmm. wrapped in cotton wool. I mean, it was one of the best art schools in the world and it still is. And you're studying with some great people, you know, the people in my year. So was David Adjaye who did the African-American building Chris Ophelia, the painter, Johannes Verkeller, Sue Stockwell, Hugh Locke, you know, all these artists are people that are known now. So it was a really interesting period. So we were just making work and having fun. Right. And we were actually thinking about the art world because we think the art world is a certain place that is someone standing by the door that lets you in. (laughs) Right. Actually, don't need an invitation. That's what I try to tell my students. You don't need an invitation to be in the art world. Mm -hmm. Just have ideas and make things. So when I left school, I was like, well, okay, I know I can cut hair. I know yeah. I can make art. So I need to make sure that I make an income from one of those two things. Mm-hmm. That's what I did. I spent, you know, the first, I'd say, nine or 10 years just literally working hard at my craft mm-hmm. and group shows and saying yes to everything and writing and commissioning and going into schools, doing outreach So I was trying to do everything that my, you know, the skills that I'd been taught at school Mm -hmm. would allow me to keep the lights on. Right. So our school taught me how to speak, you know, very fluently about my work. It taught me how to change the depth of what I was saying, according to the audience. So from speaking to some school kids or speaking to like, the University of Cambridge. So it allowed me to be able to, what we call flip the script in mm-hmm. the audience. And it gave me skills to be able to host a workshop for any given period of time on a particular kind of medium, i.e. printmaking. That's what I was studying. Right. So it taught me all of these things that I was able to you know, navigate the first 10 years of my life to almost like create a space for myself mm-hmm. and a space for my practice.
0: Amazing, I mean, and then those 10 years, clearly how you stated you learned a lot you gained a lot of not only experiences but continued to hone your craft and your skills but as you progressed you became this clear powerhouse not only within the art community but also as just an educator and as a figure that many people look up to in a way but you also love to cut hair you keep talking about like how that was your form of income for a while especially during school and that's something that you were able to hone your skills and in that craft as well but now that you're, you know, very well established, you're and distinguished art chair. I always get those a little mi- mixed up here. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> and
0: yeah. then you're also now the associate dean. Like, How do you still kind of exercise and balance these different types of skills and crafts and works that you kind of allow yourself to dive into?
1: It's funny. That's a good question because the only way that I could describe it, it links with the talk I did this morning for the athletics department. Because right. they are asking me about my interest career in athletics because I played semi-pro football or semi-pro mm. soccer when I was in the <laughs> And they laughed when I said, football, soccer, and they laughed. Laugh. And I said that those two practices align mm. with how my life was structured because there was so much discipline that was involved in playing in a semi-pro team and balancing right. that with my academic pursuits getting up early in the morning, doing road work, you know, eating well, mm-hmm. you know, all those kind of things, uh, working through pain when you think your body's failing you, knowing that it's just all in your head. So there's right. so it kind of mentally strengthens you in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think I apply the same kind of logic to my respected duties or titles. But one thing I do is when I leave university, I leave university. When I right. go home, I don't touch anything to do with the university. So I have two very different spaces. Mm-hmm. So, For example, when I'm at home, I don't do anything to do with my practice, my arts practice. Right. Where I'm sitting down is my studio. Mm-hmm. So I come here primarily to think through ideas and try to give ideas form.
2: All right.
1: I'm in the dean's office. I'm only dealing with my dean duty responsibilities. I don't do anything to do with my studio when I'm up there. Right. So I have these very distinct spaces where I almost like put, you know, I switch the creative switch on. I switch on the kind of the don't care switch when I'm at home. Right. And then when I'm in the Dean's office, I'm looking at my roles and responsibilities and my service to my area, the arts, dance, theater and drama, and my colleagues and the UW-Madison mission. Right. So I'm very clear as to, who I am in the different spaces. And I use the space mm. as a signifier that says, mm. this is what you're going to do here today. Right. Do you ever
0: like find yourself maybe at the Dean's office and an idea pops into your head about something that you kind of want to pinpoint and you want to pin that into your little like corkboard of a mind, be like, okay, when I get to the studio, that's where I'm going to map that out. Oh yeah, to- absolutely.
1: Yeah. yeah. You- <laughs> I mean, that's always going to happen. And I'm going to send myself an email or, I just park it in the side of my head so I know when I leave the office, I'm going to come straight down the hill, come straight to the art loft, and put that into practice. I'm always going to be switched on as an artist. I'm always going to be switched on as a a scholar. I'm always going to be switched on in this role as associate dean. But it's just knowing when you're doing the bulk of that. Right. Because what can happen is, you know, you can kind of lose control. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. find that I'm in my studio doing Dean's work. Right. i collecting a drawing that I'm supposed to be doing over there. Right. I'm up in the Dean's office and I'm working on like, you know, the catalog for my next book. And I'm talking to like <laughs> you know, the writers and the designer. And before you know it, you're blowing the lines. Right. So I'm at home and I'm ignoring my kids because I'm doing work. And I'm like, no, when I'm at home, I'm switched into my other me. Right. And that's really important. And that's the social me, the don't care me. <laughs>
0: how do you kind of like ensure that you don't lose that quote unquote control? I think at the end of the day, we're all human beings. Like we're not going to be absolutely perfect with our routines and we'll always slip up. Yep. How do you find yourself when you catch yourself losing control? What do you do specifically to be kind of ensuring that that routine and those lines are very clear cut?
1: It's just exactly what you said. I just remind myself that I'm only human. Right. and That's just my guide is that this is how, in a utopian space this is how it is right but again there are times i slip up i might answer an email or i might get on the phone but if i do i'm kind to myself Mm -hmm. i say you know what i'm only human okay you was in there for an hour now let's bring it back now faisal let's put that away and let's focus on going to play tennis so let's focus on getting some exercise because this is not the time for this Mm-hmm. so me, it's just about being kind to yourself not being hard to yourself
0: right I mean again as we kind of move forward with this like you're very much multifaceted this is not something that we're you know blurring those lines of it's very clear that you are giving a hundred percent into everything that you do and when people meet you they might meet you at first to be an artist but yet may not know you as an associate dean but yep. they also might not know. Then they'll further learn that you're a barber as well. Yeah. And as a barber, like, could you talk about Faisal Barbers and the conception of the shop?
1: Sure. So I think it was in 1998. I think I was working in another shop in London, and what happened was that shop came up for sale that I was working in in 1998, and I worked there for a few years as. Right when I was a part-time student, you know? Mm -hmm. And I agreed with the owner that, you know, both of us will purchase this shop that we were in because I had made some money from selling work and commissioning Mm -hmm. work. And I thought this would be a good investment. People know me. So we did all the, you know, research, we got the valuations done. And then I think it was a week or two weeks before we were closing on the deal, the owner called me up and he says, Hey, are you still buying the shop with, you know, such and such? And I said, yes. He said, well, you need to check because I think he's buying it on his own. And I was like, <laughs> exactly. I was like, whoa, <laughs> pulled him up. And I says, hey, he said, hey, I heard you're buying a shop on your own. And he went, yes. And I was like, okay. I just went, thank you. I just put the phone down. And then from that point on, another side of my brain kicked in and I just began looking at other places right. that I could go. And I was still working in, in his shop, you could say. Right. And I walked around the neighborhood and I found a shop literally on the next block. Oh, my goodness. And this shop had a basement, which meant, oh, I could probably have my studios studio in there. <laughs> then have the shop on the top level. So, you know what I did? I put in an offer. I acquired the shop. And I had to get it remodeled. Mm-hmm. And it was costly. So, I decided to then work full time in that shop, in the same barber shop that I was going to buy. Right. He continued to purchase it. And I used all the money that I earned from there to remodel the shop on the next wow. block. And then three months or six months later, I just called him up because I was running the shop for him. I called him up and I says, "I'm leaving the shop. I'm leaving your keys here for you." And, then, and I said to him, and I put the phone down. Then, I was ready. Night. I left and I opened my shop.
0: And he walked time. one block down. And, it and was I walked there. one
1: block down, and and that was it. And then you know, and they were okay. They did well for a while. And then I think. A year later, they closed down, Wow, and my place is still there. and it's been there since nineteen ninety nine Faisal's in West and, London,
0: and what is the basement now? Is it still a studio? still
1: my studio, yeah, so my stuff, some of my work is, is still there. I still have my books there, but yeah, no, it's still there, so
0: I mean, again, this is another like cog in the machine that makes Faisal Abdullah like a person like you are an owner of a barbershop. How is that cog in your brain like? Turning, especially like as you open up a shop, you have a studio down there, and you're just still cutting hair and honing those skills in. What was that experience like for you? Or what is it like for you?
1: I think the easiest way to maybe describe it was the day because I like to paint. Right. So when I came in and did all the work, all the plastering, I said I'm gonna paint my shop myself. Mm. So I was rolling, painting the wall, and I remember I paused and a voice in my head said, What have you done? (laughs) you bought a shop with all your like savings you purchased a shop what if it doesn't work right and i stopped and i remember this song was playing in the background shanks and bigfoot sweet like chocolate right so i stopped and the song was playing and you know what i just shook my head and i says it has to work right i carried on painting the wall and he
0: kept painting the wall
1: yeah and that's What's been my mantra that has carried me all this time? That even though, you know, yes, there's a shop over there and I'm a visual artist here and doing some scholarship stuff over here and traveling, it just has to work. And whatever means it takes for me to do that, trusting people to be there, to run the store, shop in my absence, working, you know, sometimes 18-hour shifts on Valentine's Day and over Christmas because that's when everybody wants to look good. You know, having to clean the shop later night because you know i couldn't afford a cleaner right. so it was putting in the work to really kind of establish the brand because you know i think it's in the first five years most businesses fold right so the first five years were really really hard balancing the shop and balancing my artistic career and i think you can see i was only in a few shows in the years that i had the shop established right then after that it changed
0: during my recent conversation with Faisal, I was struck by his remarkable presence. Not only did he engage in our dialogue with great enthusiasm, but the stories he shared were truly captivating. It is clear that many individuals are unaware of the diverse skill set that Faisal possesses. As a highly acclaimed artist, renowned educator, and an owner of his own barbershop, he has excelled in multiple spheres. Listening to Faisal's anecdotes and experiences felt akin to sitting in a barber's chair and listening to the personal journey of the barber. His ability to engage in meaningful conversation and encourage a free flow of ideas allowed for the enriching and rewarding exchange. Faisal's ability to switch effortlessly between different modes and maintain his identity as a multifaceted creative individual is impressive. His openness to explore diverse perspectives and challenging societal norms through his art makes him a fascinating and inspiring figure. It was an absolute privilege to engage with Faisal and learn from his wealth of experiences. We now will move on to Dark Matter, the exhibit that he has at the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art. Well, now let's kind of talk more about your work. So your expertise in your visual art is in contemporary art within Afro-British culture, which discusses many issues of race and identity in relation to issues of cultural diversity and multiculturalism. This is seen in many of your projects as you've integrated your time as a barber into your body of work as well with the live salons. What led you in this certain direction? What was the path that opened for you that you knew that that was the direction you wanted to go down,
1: so there was a time when I was in art school. We have critiques where you put your work up, your professors turn up, and we have a discussion, and you're questioned on your kind of research methods, your research materials, and who things that you are referencing, right. So I remember my work was on the wall at the Royal College of Art, and my professors turned to me, and he says, "Okay, so which artists, writers, critics are you referencing?" for this particular piece. And I says, actually, I'm actually listening to an album by KRS-One actually. And there's some stuff in there where he talks about, you must learn. And I'm actually listening to an album by Lakeem Shabazz. I'm actually reading a book by J.A. Rogers. I'm actually, you know, reading a book by Francis Quest Welsling. I'm actually reading something by, you know, Kobona Mercer. And they looked at me clueless. They had no idea. Any of my research methods, because I wasn't, Reiterating their research methods that they'd asked me to read right. when I first came into the university. so I had to read Freud, I had to read Foucault. I had to okay. read Decker. I had to read Nietzsche. I had to read all of these you know writers and theorists because that's what was valued in their orbit right I began to grow as an artist I'm like, but these writers are not in my orbit. they're not mm-hmm. writing about my experience. how authentic are going to be the objects? that I'm investing all this information in going to have any value. Right. And that's the whole table turn. And the blank stare that they gave me was exactly what I wanted because right. it told me, and I told them, well, if you want to have a discussion about this work, you need to go and listen to Keres 1. Right. If you don't want to. Did I want to read Nietzsche? No, I didn't. No. <laughs> Did I yes, because I'm disciplined and I listened to the advice that you gave me as an elder. And that's mm-hmm. when I realized that where the the scales were imbalanced when it came to, you know, visual arts and it came to research methods and how we valued research methods, and that's what took me on that path, that there was this space, there was a void that wasn't being filled. There right. were the minds, and there was a the desire, there were people who were already contributing lots of valuable research in terms of history, in terms of theory, in terms of philosophy Mm -hmm. that, you know, shed my optics and they were being scrupulously excluded from the institutions. That's
0: amazing. Well then, you know, one of the most like kind of riveting things that I got to learn about you is your visual performance with the live salons. That's something that's very integral within your shows and then within your exhibits, it not only do you just talk about a person's life, you also kind of have these conversations that relate to their social identity and kind of their representation. Is that something that stemmed from your change and like you flipped the script when you chose this creative direction? Is that something that you knew that you wanted to integrate within your body of work?
1: If I'm going to be honest about that, and that would be no. Really? And what happened with Life Salon, it was... I will always give credit. And, you know, even today when I spoke about it, I will say the artist, Jessica Vorsanger, very well-known artist. She called me up years ago and said, hey, right. Faisal, can you come and do a lecture at my school? And I was like, sure, I can do that. And she said, but you have to perform it. And I said, Jessica, I don't do performances. Mm-hmm. And then she kept calling me back over a period of three months. Like, fine. I mean, surely you can do a performance. I said, no, I don't sing. I don't dance. I don't do backflips. I don't do any of those things. (laughs) And then when it got to the point where she thought, he's not going to do this. She went, you cut hair, don't you? And I says, of course I do. And she said, could you not come to the school and just cut hair while you're doing the performance? I was like, you want me to come and cut hair at your school? I said, I can do that with my eyes closed. Right. And she said, that would be great. So I went to Canterbury School of Art, turned up with my son, and we put a chair in the middle of the studio. Students all turned up. 30 students sat around me in a circle. And I started cutting hair. And the hour flew past. And we spoke about everything you could imagine, down to who was your hairstylist, what was your first haircut. You know, there was this space of sharing. Mm-hmm. And there's something disarming about getting a haircut that people just feel as if they know you. Right From that point on, I think a year later, there was a big show called the British art show and they contacted me, the Hayward gallery. And they said, we heard about this haircutting performance. Could you come and do it in the British art show? And I was like, sure. (laughs) And then from the British art show, that was the main platform where I did it in the Hayward gallery Mm -hmm. And there was a huge audience. I did it in a Dan Graham pavilion. That's when I'd say a live salon came alive because the art world said that there's this artist doing this incredible everyday activity in the gallery. And it's fascinating. And that's where momentum began to, you know, gather with that.
0: Well, you see now, I mean, it's like seeing what you do with the live salon, you kind of see it now with more quote unquote bigger celebrities. what you see like LeBron James with like the barbershop. Is yeah. that something that you are appreciative of? Like something that is so not mundane, but very ordinary, turned into this more culturally significant body of work.
1: Absolutely. And for me, I would argue that it has always been culturally specific. It yeah. has always been of great importance in communities having trust. Mm -hmm. when they weren't trusted by the host community. It was always a space that people could be the best version of themselves for three weeks. It was always a space that people felt safe. It was always a space that people could openly talk about societal issues. Mm -hmm. It was a space of economics where one person would be paid and rewarded for their labors. But for me, it was my first institution of learning. That's where I learned how to navigate the streets, how to really get comprehension of what actually race was, Mm -hmm. what was the host community. And it was great in that it was able to feed my imagination as they were talking about things I had no comprehension of. (laughs) I was making these images in my head of what I thought they were. And I was young. I was like five, six, seven, eight. Right. So for me, the most important thing was this space of learning. And I just love the fact that it's open season now. Everyone is talking Mm -hmm. about The barbershop space even when we think about lgbtq how for a lot of those people who would come into my barbershop coming into gender going through gender reassignment cutting hair was a ceremony right cutting their hair off was a ceremony of getting rid of the old and in with the new in with the new
0: wow that's very strong now i mean one of at least i don't know if it's the chair but One of the live salon chairs is in the Momoka now, if I'm correct. 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 Well, now let's move on to the Momoka. If you are listening and you're walking down State Street and Henry Street, you will see a figure sitting on a chair of you. And it's the blueprint. So this is part of your exhibit with the Momoka, The Dark Matter. And the first, I think, piece that you incorporated was this seven foot tall figure of yourself sitting made out of limestone. What
1: made you want to do that? What was that journey? I think it came primarily from my time being in the US, Mm -hmm. and hearing a lot of the conversations, debates, disputes and concerns Mm -hmm. with public form or what they call. Monuments. Mm-hmm. And as an artist, I think I have the license to have my own thoughts and have right. my own response to things. And my take was simply a number of icons that I've loved and respected and followed and read contributed significantly to people that share my optics, getting education, right. Uh, the right to vote. Housing and they walked past these monuments. They walked past them, and I had this thing that it almost felt like this new discussion around these monuments felt like a distraction from the real issue, right? Real societal issues. So, with my artistic head, I, I ran a class once with my freshman students from the studio, and I gave them a monument without the monument on the top, so it was just a plinth, right. And I says, I'm going to give you five hundred thousand dollars. Draw me what you would like to see on this monument. And they came up with these wonderful ideas, beautiful ideas. Ice. They'd stand on it. They'd perform it. It'd be organic. And then I realized that what if, what does it cost to remove a monument? And you're looking at around three million, four million dollars. Oh my! To remove a monument. And I says, what if each monument that we wanted to remove we gave that money to an artist. Right. We gave the artist $3 million and the artist could take half a million for their fee. They maybe take a million to make the work. Mm-hmm. The other $1.5 they can improve the community. Right. And then that monument will have a conversation mm-hmm. with that piece because my take was they paid $3 million to remove the monument, They take it and it sits in a field. They Mm -hmm. pay somebody else who comes and picks it up and they put it in a museum. They do not put that monument in landfill. That monument is still here alive. Mm -hmm. Even the General Lee, they say they're going to melt down. They're going to melt this thing down. (laughs) They're not going to ever let you forget whatever it is molded into. They will say, that object over there was originally General Lee. Right. So they're always gonna keep the memory alive. Now, even though the monument may not be there, they're keeping the memory of it alive, which makes it just as potent. Right. And just you know, disturbing. So for me, I'm like, keep the conversation public. I said, you know, I'd love to make a monument. Maybe not, you know, I don't want to be a counter-monument, but it came to be a counter-monument. And I met with Quora Stone in Madison, mm-hmm. who were the people who were removing General Lee Monument at the time. And they were curious about my take on monuments but more curious about me as a practitioner as an artist and they believed in the project as we got deeper into the project jim durham and heather Schatz at the time walked me through the quarry and we had a discussion about stone what stone would you use and i said well marble and granite is what everyone knows right but marble and granite feels mm-hmm. like there's no negotiation mm-hmm. and it's hard it's cold and it's not porous
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Then Jim pointed to the limestone and he says, "Oh, look at all the variations in the stone itself." Right. And then he said, "It actually comes out of Indiana." And then he said, "Limestone comes out of the ground soft, mm-hmm. and it hardens over time." And I was like, "That feels like a human being, right? You know, born soft, soft, and were born innocent, malleable, and over time." Our hearts harden. Mm-hmm. And then that's a piece. And then we thought, well, what are we going to depict? And I says, well, I'm curious about portholes and transformation and alchemy and having a visual reference for that. And I just thought, hey, I want to do a sit- seated figure in a porthole. And that porthole for me is the barber chair. The barber chair felt like the new Afrofuturistic space. Right. You get in and you transcend, you disappear. Right. And I just felt, you know, I, I could be that person. And it's not a vanity project. It's just me being a representative Mm -hmm. of idea. And the word blueprint, when you see it displayed, it has a number three on top of it, Mm -hmm. which means you can spell the word Ubuntu Mm. with blueprint because Ubuntu has got three U's. So I put a three there to make sure you can spell the word Ubuntu, which means a person is a person through other people. My humanity is tied up in your humanity. It's a Swahili term. And that's exactly what the blueprint piece talks about. It talks about our universal duty of care to mm-hmm. each other and our shared experience beyond the optics mm-hmm. of what we've been to look at.
0: That's amazing. I mean, I walk past it like every day and before I got to meet you and really get to know who you are i would just walk past it and always just wonder like who is that sitting on this chair and i mean you're sitting on the barber chair i mean i watched the video kind of like the process it took to kind of like cut the stone and get the detailing out do you see that relation with like you cutting hair with The people that basically cut the limestone, put the detailing in. Did you find that to be pretty similar in that sort of way?
1: Yeah, I realized that at the very end of the process, that carving the stone is the same as cutting human hair. Right. Because I have to start with a machine, so the machine is the what I start to either do the flat top or the afro or the fade. Mm -hmm. That's just something that is part of the industrialized revolution. Makes things easier. Makes life Mm -hmm. easier. And then once I've used the machine to almost like set the scene,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I then finish it. I finish it with the cutthroat. And the cutthroat requires patience. Mm-hmm. It requires specificity. It requires a certain hand movement that can only be learnt over time. Right. Because one move and you're going to cut the person open. It's like, you know, it's like surgery. And I realized that when I when I did my blueprint, they cut it on a robot, a mm. machine, 80 hours. <laughs> and then Martin Foote came in from Italy and finished the hands and their head by hand. So almost like the machine was the clipper, right? Martin Foote was the razor. Wow. You know, in the same way that I have the machine, and then I finish mm-hmm. it with the razor. I was seeing the parallels of how we bring things into existence.
0: That's amazing. As we keep talking about the Dark Matter exhibit, there is one piece that you kind of reconstructed, and it was a a very ambitious structure, which is the Garden of Eden, which you and the celebrated architect David Ajayi collaborated and created this multifaceted structure. I mean the structure itself is a really charging experience like drawing from your experiences in Austria which compels each viewer to like consider the differences between privileged and unprivileged space. Could you talk about the story in which this piece was inspired by and then could you kind of talk about why it was important for you to bring that back into your Dark Matter exhibit?
1: Yeah, I was invited to do a show in Austria and I think I flew in to The main airport. And then I had to travel to, I think it was Bregenz to Mm -hmm. see space. So we had to get on a train and travel for a few hours. And I remember going through the landscape and it was in the afternoon and the sun was setting. And I began to become more self conscious each time we pulled into a train station. The glass is obviously reflective because I'm inside the carriage. Right. But people were looking in at me and I'm like, and people were like looking like, and they were just in my carriage. Mm. And then after a few stations, I realized there's a pattern here. So I wonder if it's actually me. Mm-hmm. Am I the person they're looking at in, in my own ignorance? Then when I got to the final station, I got up. And as I was going towards the door, I remember because, it, again, it's reflective. You can't really see out. Right. I'll see these heads coming towards my door. So as the doors open and I walk down the steps, I was tired. It was midnight. It's was really right. tired. So I wasn't focusing on, on anything. Mm-hmm. I could hear a sound. I hear a sound. I'm like, what's that sound? And I hear someone chanting. I was like, what are they chanting? And they were all going, clue, clucks, glam, clue. And I was like, what? Yeah. Like, in my head, I just almost immediately woke up.
2: Right. And
1: as I walked through them, I was like, yeah, this is going to go off. Mm-hmm. And somebody stood right in front of me and went, Faisal. And it was a curator and he put his arm around me and he, and he kind of walked me off and they dropped me to my apartment and the thought was going through my head the whole night. Right. And then it was at that point that the garden of Eden as a seed Mm -hmm. came into existence Mm -hmm. because I asked them to help me create a space. They gave me two spaces basically for my exhibition proposal. And I said, look, I want to knock a hole in the wall. In this space, place a glass in it. Mm -hmm. And I want blue-eyed people to come into this room, and I want brown eyed people to go into that room. It was a very simple installation. Right. And the way they can see into the next space is with a mirror that's on this glass. Mm -hmm. So it was a very simple space. And it wasn't called the Garden of Eden, then it was called Eyes Without a Face. Mm. And then it was just two rooms that you go in with different eye color, you're separated by. And there were there was an image of me as a child in my in one space image of my father in another space right and then most ideas you evolve them you develop them over time mm-hmm. and then I wanted to make it much more of an immersive experience mm. make it much more of a kind of an object right And autograph in London came to see me and they said could we work on a project together and I said yeah I'd love to make this thing called the, a garden of Eden and I said what would that be and I said I want to make this kind of object that people can walk in but they're surrounded by their own reflection. Mm -hmm. But somebody else is looking in at them Mm -hmm. because we live in the same world, but we live in different worlds. Right. And that's when we we met up with David. And obviously I knew David at the time and David loved the idea. He was so into the idea and created this beautiful drawing and made this little model of what it could be. And essentially, you know, the rest was history. We, We built it. And we showed it at the Chisholm Gallery in London, and it was really well-received. The thing with the piece, and it still is a trace of it here, is that there's no signage. Mm-hmm. David said there should be no sign that says blue eyes, grey, green, this way, brown, hazel red, this way. The attendant for the gallery must look at you and say, the artist mm. would like you to go right. Artists would like you to go left. So it was important that there was that human interaction. And for me, the Garden of Eden speaks on on a number of levels, you know, because eye color essentially is different levels of melanin that makes Mm -hmm. your eye color. Mm -hmm. People are under the impression that only brown or black people have melanin. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I think that's not the case. White people have melanin, right? which means everybody is melanated. Yeah, different levels, right? So we say a person of color. Actually, are we saying a white person is not a person of color? Mm. What doesn't make them a person of color because right. they're not That's not true. They do have melanin. Mm-hmm. So for me, it raised some really interesting questions about you know how society categorizes, right. captions, describes human beings.
0: Interesting. Well, I mean, the exhibit itself like showcases and represents Black excellence and the conversations necessary to kind of continue to celebrate people that share your optics. In your honest take, where do you believe that we stand as a culture and how do we continue to push the threshold of Black excellence and its representation in not only the arts, but also in society and as a culture here?
1: I mean, that's a a really, really big question. Right. <laughs> I don't have the bandwidth or I would say the amount of work mm-hmm. to even resolve it. What I can say from my own position as an artist, as a thinker, as a parent, as a human being mm-hmm. is that I think we have a duty to almost there's a song by Glenn Lewis and it's called faceless. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and I sat and I listened to it and I was like, wow, what if we were all faceless? Right. How would we treat each other? Mm. And I think we just have to, one, I think we have to be, I think some people, well, in our society, the reason why we have a lot of hate
2: Mm -hmm.
1: towards other individuals is that those doing the hating don't have any love. They don't have any. Mm. Because if you had any love, you would understand how important it is to receive it and to give it. Mm-hmm. And you would understand what happens when, they, when you are bereft of it. Right. You know, and understand what it means to have care and what it means just to be human.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I, I think we have some way to go. We do right. have some way to go because, as we sit here and speak now, there are still, you know, communities that share my optics that are still hungry.
2: Mm-hmm. There are
1: communities that share my optics that are still being subjected to the same types of isolation or discrimination from education. Right. From welfare. And I'm thinking like, but we all know who is depriving them of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But we we'll just keep having conversations Mm -hmm. so my other thing is to move beyond the rhetoric moving beyond the rhetoric is is really important Mm because i think there's too much rhetoric going on there's too many discussions and conferences to talk about things that they actually know what the answer is there's no need to write another book i say it's beyond my bandwidth because there's been hundreds of thousands of books that have been written by scholars that have lived and learned and understood exactly what the inequities in our society is just that nobody wants to read the books, right? nobody watched any of the films. Nobody has even just taken the time out to even mm-hmm. check. So I, I do think that people need to spend some time off their phones and start to converse with each other. You know, right. because people talk about, for example, when I'm in London, people say, Oh, London is great. It's so diverse. What I say to my colleagues is, okay, you think London is great because it's diverse same in new york new york is great because it's diverse i said right. how many of you think back to when you had dinner parties at your house mm. just think back to what that dinner party table looked like right how diverse was it mm-hmm. how diverse are your friends that you have on speed dial mm-hmm. have real intense conversations with right and i'm saying you know just pulling names out of the hat just to say, I have a friend from here or I have a friend from there. Right. How many people do you have genuine relationships with? Mm-hmm. I know I have that. I have people in my life who I have genuine relationships with who are from all over. Right. So I don't need to handily say who or where they are from, but I know I am able to communicate honestly and openly with them. Mm-hmm. And I find that those individuals that have those broad communities of friends also, Right. are very incredible dear human beings so I think the ones who are in isolation they're the ones who are causing some of the major problems
0: mm-hmm. that's
1: and that's amazing. where I think some ways to go
0: Dark Matter is an extraordinary exhibition that serves as a catalyst for meaningful conversation about social identity and representation Faisal's artwork is a true testament to his creative talent and artistic excellence. Our conversation regarding the exhibition emphasizes the significance of having a representative voice. One of the most captivating pieces we discussed was Blueprint, and conveys the power of conversation and the importance of representing those who are often marginalized. The Afrofuturistic piece not only showcases the figure in great detail, but also includes the selection of limestone and the timeline in which it was created. And the conversation that Faisal and I had about how it started as a conceptual idea to a full standing figure that we can all see is truly remarkable. And Blueprint is a deeply thought-provoking piece. Moving on to The Garden of Eden, the structure represents the concept of privileged and unprivileged spaces and the contradiction between them. Faisal's personal experience in Austria and the dark emotion it evoked are beautifully conveyed through the concept and the execution of the piece. The progression of art is encapsulated in the story of the piece, making it remarkable. Dark Matter, as an exhibition itself, is truly a captivating exhibition that demonstrates the significance of representation and the power of art in shaping conversations about social identity. We now are going to explore Faisal's time as an educator and the strides he has made to represent not only future artists, but also underprivileged youths who need a voice. Our conversation highlights Faisal's dedication to uplifting marginalized communities and the transformative power of art in shaping our society. You talked about how there are still welfare inequities and there is still a ways to go to improve that. And in a way, you've kind of started to establish that with Foul House, which if people don't know and it sounds familiar it's based off the name is drawing inspiration from the German Bauhaus it's a project that brings together underrepresented UW Madison students and court involved Dane County teens in which you mentor these students in the development yep. and presentation of their exhibition how did that project come into fruition and what have you personally learned as this project became into a reality
1: i mean for me it was i was approached by Nancy Banger, when I first came to Madison, and she asked me if I would do some outreach work with some of the youth. And I was mm-hmm. like, sure. Right. And, she, and she almost looked like she'd seen a ghost. I goes, is everything okay? She says, Pfizer, it's just unusual that professors are interested in doing any form of outreach, especially with court involves kids. And I was like, sure, I'll do that. And the more and more that I began to work with these young kids, I wasn't a bad kid by any stretch of the imagination, right? some of those kids that I began to work with, they were some of my friends. like mm-hmm. they were Almost like metaphors of some of my friends that I had kind of known when I was growing up. right? And what I realized in the early stage of working with these young kids is that all they wanted was, was somebody to listen and mm-hmm. see them.
2: Mm-hmm. All they
1: wanted was someone to listen to and see them. And the more and more I began to see the same pattern. The more I began to say, you know what, this cannot be me seeing a group of kids for like three weeks and then disappearing. I think they need to have a, a much more sustained relationship. Mm-hmm. And That's when I began to bring Firehouse into existence. So the F for Faisal and the H is for Henny Droll. He was the person that I first cut in Life Salon. So we kind of came together informally to put together this Firehouse but well, I said, Henry, I want to have you as the H anyway, just as a sign of respect. Right. But it was under my kind of you know orbit. But it was about trying to allow every form of creativity to exist mm-hmm. within this space, regardless of where it is. So I would bring in poets, writers, painters, designers, mm-hmm. and we would give students, you know, a soft introduction to the arts. Right. But more importantly give them key skills to understand, you know, representation in their orbit. So when they see an advert, they're like, oh, I get that. I know what the advert is trying to say. So it's making them more image conscious.
0: That's great. I mean, and now you're the Associate Dean for the Arts in the School of Education here in UW-Madison. You also, again, as we mentioned, are the Chazen Distinguished Chair in Art. What have these opportunities meant for you in terms of giving back to a whole new generation of artists that you kind of see come through?
1: I think what's important about that position is that I'm able to be a reminder Mm -hmm. when I'm in certain rooms within the university to ensure that the arts are fairly compensated, treated, respected and elevated. -hmm. Because I think there are certain areas within the arts, and I'm talking about the arts broadly. And as associate dean, I look after dance, theater, and drama, and the arts. Mm -hmm. So, simple things just like, you know, artists' well being, artists' studio space. How do we ensure that our, you know, actors have auditioning spaces that are, you know, on par? with our other institutions or Mm -hmm. you know other theatres around wisconsin and beyond so how do we if we're not there already bring all of the arts so all of their areas and studios and labs are on par with each other first Mm -hmm. of all Mm -hmm. and then how do we then allow the respective disciplines to then have a bigger footprint outside of the university, just like the idea. So how are we able to now have the community aspect? How are we going to be able to reach those communities considering coming into UW? And also, you know, when they then get here, is then how do we create the conditions for them to feel heard, the conditions of excellence for them Mm -hmm. to thrive, and how do we then create the legacy? So there's a number Mm -hmm. of things that I think, you know, Being in in this position has afforded me opportunities to be a voice for some of the things that I hold truth to myself as an artist and as a scholar.
0: And your work as an artist is about really just giving people a voice and allowing people to be heard. And how has those kind of those experiences as an artist and throughout your career, even as a barber, aided you now as an educator, as a
1: representation
0: for these students?
1: I always say that I don't consider myself when I'm going to do a class that I'm actually teaching. Mm. I always say I'm having a conversation with an audience. Right. And there's this wonderful backwards and forwards, this exchange that. They're teaching me and I'm and I'm teaching them, or they're giving me something and I'm mm-hmm. giving them something back. And for me, it's about creating a safe space mm-hmm. for real imagination and ideas to find authentic forms.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's the first thing. The second thing is letting them understand the importance and value in actually making. Right. So the idea, then the importance and value of making. And then finally, the dissemination is that how does this object or how does this design thing or how does this three-dimensional or how does this film function out Mm -hmm. in the world? What is its purpose and its importance and what is its contribution Mm -hmm. to new knowledge? And I think getting students to understand that everything that they create is a contribution to new knowledge, Mm -hmm. Never been done before and unique to them only really gives them I think an impetus to want to create
0: how has your perception from being a student like you talked about in the arts and in school of arts now you're an educator how has your perception of art or the teaching of art changed
1: that's a really good question I think the only thing that's changed and I came to this realization during a lecture mm-hmm. and I Said that the answer visited me. And I just said, I actually teach because I teach what wasn't taught to me. Mm -hmm. And it's not the fault of the teacher, but they teach within a certain period and they teach what they were familiar with within Mm -hmm. their cultural space and domain. And I tell my students that some of you that I'm having a conversation with and as an audience or teaching there are things that I may not teach you right and you should then fill in those gaps as well Mm -hmm. so this is not a critique this is one generously just you know passing on Mm -hmm. that I don't know everything right the things that you want to know I don't know them Mm -hmm. and and I may never get to know them because I can't know every song right can't know every painter from every continent mm-hmm. so all I can do is be the best that I can be in their presence
2: mm-hmm. and give
1: them some of the tools but that toolkit is not complete right they have to understand that they need to get the remainder of the tools to be the perfect craft person
0: I have one last question for you I mean now We've learned about you being a barber, an artist, and even an educator. What do you see the future for you holding? And what are some goals that you have in this upcoming year?
1: As I've always said, I think the future is, I would say the past is painful. right? Present is precarious. And the future is full of infinite possibilities. Mm-hmm. So I would say for me, the future is full of infinite possibilities. If I'm fortunate enough to, to walk in the future. Future, I have a few ideas that I would love to, you know, works that I want to complete. In the show, I have the, the the principal masons. I'd love to make a piece based on the Eastern Stars. i'd lo- That's what I'm working on now. I'd love to do some kind of collaborations with some of the sporting icons at UW. So I'm kind mm. of thinking about, and I would maybe I, I probably might see the future. I would love to get to the Antarctica to do a project there. Mm. And I think once I get there. I can probably retire. <laughs> yeah. That's probably something that I would love to kind of get to as a as a part of my practice that I think is a part of the puzzle that I want to um, complete.
0: That's amazing. Well, Faisal, thank you so much for talking with me today. Before I let you go, any last words? Where can the people find you? What you know, just shout yourself out in a way.
1: Oh, So you can find me on Instagram, Foulhouse. And yeah, you can, uh, I'm going to update my site now. It's just my full name, Faisal at gmail at uh, gmail.com. Anybody has any questions, you know where to find me. I'm not hard to find. I'm at the universe, no. abduwala.wis. You can get hold of me, .edu. Really easy. Happy to answer any questions. And I would say try and get hold of that Dark Matter book because it's mm-hmm. selling fast. We have only a few signed copies left. And it's a beautiful summary of, of my current work.
0: Where can people find that book?
1: So you can buy that book at Momocha
0: mm-hmm.
1: currently. And it will be also available on Amazon, but I think there's a $3 charge if you purchase it from Amazon.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much,
1: Faisal. Andrew, thank you so much. You take care and you have a wonderful day.
0: You too. Thank you for tuning into today's episode. Once again, I'm your host, Andrew, and I want to thank Faisal for taking the time to speak with me today and to Sam Wallner for creating the music you heard on today's episode. This episode was about pushing the threshold and then allowing yourself to be multifaceted. So if you know someone that fits that standard, share with them this episode. You can find me and the shop on Instagram at Andrew Inomoto and at underscore August shop. And find August located on 414 State Street, Madison, Wisconsin, or on august-shop.com. Once again, thank you for listening to the August Forum.